Music, science, cosmic culture. This is the Blue Dot Podcast. This episode is brought to you thanks to support from The Space through funding from Arts Council England and the National Lottery. For more information, visit discovertheblue.com slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the Blue Dot Podcast wherever you're listening. Well, hello, Blue Dot. This is Anna Matronic for the Blue Dot Podcast, and I am very, very honored and excited to be welcoming to a conversation with me about her work, Dr. Jill Tarter. She's an astronomer, former director of the Center for SETI Research, and uh, she is the scientist who coined the term brown dwarf while researching small mass objects that fail to stably fuse hydrogen for her PhD thesis. Her work in astrobiology and her success as one of the trailblazing female scientists in STEM have garnered her achievement awards for many, many organizations. Too long to list right here, but she most famously inspired the character Ellie Arroway in the film Contact, which was based on her work illustrated in the Carl Sagan novel. I am so, so excited and honored to speak with you, Doctor. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, how are you dealing? And let's let's speak first. Where where are we talking to you today? I'm in Berkeley, California, and have been in this house for months, <laughs> except <Yeah. laughs> grocery runs. Yes, it's a, it's a really weird time. Yes. Um, tell me, um, I'm actually in your neck of the woods. I know you grew up in New York, which is where I am right now, um, in a nice sweltering New York summer. Um, <laughs> and uh, But I'm actually from the West Coast and uh, spent, spent a lot of time in the Bay Area. Um, and uh, I wanted to uh, to first talk about what life is like for a... Uh, an extraterrestrial researcher during lockdown. <laughs> how has your work changed? Do you work from home a lot or how, and you know, uh, how does that, how does that manifest now? Well, since it's, um, there's 50 miles between Berkeley and the SETI Institute, I have been working from home for years for many days out of the week. So this feels somewhat normal. Um, uh, in, uh, in many senses, it doesn't matter where I work because the observations that we make are done remotely anyway. Um, so it's, you know, it's what it is. I basically, my work is going and going around until this lockdown, going around and talking to people about SETI. And there's a whole team that, uh, does the observations, and right now we're upgrading the telescope, so we're actually not on the air at the Allen Telescope Array. But other other teams are working from other observatories around the world. And again, it's a keyboard and a connection, and then you can uh, can do what you need to do. Can you run me through a typical day in the life of uh, of a of a SETI researcher? What's what's that like? Um, that's like looking at the calendar and seeing what uh, meetings are scheduled, right? And figuring out how to um, basically how to do the search better. What new things can we do? What kinds of different objects might we decide to focus on? Um, What new observatories, right? Who hasn't been playing? And, and, and what new frequencies, what, what new ideas. Uh, so it's a lot of um, teleconferencing and then, you know, going and making um, these runs to observatories to install computing equipment and then uh, setting up a schedule and keeping an eye on whether the observing is going the way you think it should. But um, right now, the thing that we're, the two things that we're trying to do that haven't been done before um, is to use artificial intelligence, machine learning, neural networks um, to look at the data 
in a way that says there's something in there rather than what we've done for years, which is to ask the machines to find a particular type of pattern that we um, pre-set as something that would indicate a, a signal that's engineered and not astrophysical. But then that limits, right, what we will find. We won't find what we didn't ask the machine to look for. So right now, how can we use <clears throat> neural networks, excuse me, <coughs> goodness, how can we use um, machine intelligence to look at the data without these predefined biases and simply say, ah, oh, you know, it looks like that data contains some sort of information and therefore expand the type of signals that we're looking for. The other thing that's new and that we've always wanted to do, but just didn't have the speed to do it, um, is to be able to look at all the sky all the time. And this will allow us to find transient signals, right? Everybody else's observing program um, requires that whatever you're looking for has to persist for minutes, hours, weeks, however long your protocol takes you to, to reobserve. Um, but now we're beginning to think about looking everywhere all at once. And we, of course, we'd love to do it at all frequencies, but it's, it's getting started in the optical, looking for very bright transient flashes um, somewhere on the sky. And uh, that's exciting because it's a whole new category of investigation, scientific exploration. And there's a good chance that we'll find something not just engineered, which is what we're looking for, but because we haven't been able to do this in the past, we may find something that's a new type of astrophysics. That wouldn't be a bad booby prize. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, that's something that uh, you speak on, which is uh, if if we are visited by um, a an, an alien um, life form, if we are visited on Earth by by an yes, extraterrestrial intelligence, uh, they will probably be so much more advanced than we are. Um, as, as in terms of technology, because they can actually get here um, and observe us. And uh, they may be teaching us a whole new set of of uh, uh, math and science and and bits and pieces of the working um, working knowledge that we don't even have right now. And uh, that's something I, I found really interesting in your talks was thinking ahead, thinking thinking way 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 ahead um, in terms of technology. Um, the other thing that I really in, uh, enjoyed that you speak of is the idea that if we are contacted by um, or visited by another um, another life form, we will most likely and probably will be interacting with their artificial intelligence. Can you speak about that a little bit? Well, we, we might. Well, first of all, um, you talk about if we're contacted by or if they come here, that just defines that they're far older than we are, right? And they have advanced technologies that we don't yet possess. And therefore, um, it's quite possible if we look at how things are going here, where biological intelligence may be supplanted by machine intelligence, that, you know, basically it's, it's hard to send flesh and blood through space. It's a lot easier to send a machine. They're, they're more durable. Um, and so it's, it's quite likely that if interstellar travel is possible, and if it happens, that it'll be machines that we're interacting with. Um, it, and, and we just don't yet... We're, we're nowhere near close enough to thinking about how you would communicate with an intelligence that is not only not human, 
but not biological. Right? We, um, there's, there's something called metalaw that has been uh, studied for a couple of decades, people thinking about how you would write the rules for interaction of dealing with something that isn't human and probably doesn't have the same, oh, might not have the same concepts of ethics and harm and um, intention. And it's, uh, it's a really tricky business. Uh, it's, it's one of the many things that we are not yet um, advanced enough to have, uh, have figured out some good guidelines for. So, yeah, how do you talk to a machine that we built? Okay, one set of questions. How do you talk to a machine that someone else has built with other kinds of constraints and controls and parameters and um, different ideas about what is more important, what is less harmful. Um, it's, it's virgin territory. I, I, don't, I mean, we've been thinking about it, but we haven't made a lot of progress in how to do it. Most of your um, da data, does it come, still come from the Kepler spacecraft that you deal with? Um, the data that we deal with for SETI usually comes from radio telescopes, or infrared and optical telescopes with specifically purpose-built um, data processing backends. What we use, what, what Kepler has been so important for all of us is that it has shown us that there are more planets than stars out there. And when we started this business, we only knew about the planets in our own solar system. We had no idea, really, whether other star systems would have planets. And in fact, one of the things that we got started as part of SETI was Kepler itself. Um, we started holding workshops about this question of whether planets are common or rare and how you might detect them and actually Bill Baruki, who was the principal investigator for Kepler, attended those workshops. And so very early on, SETI got involved in this question about whether planets are out there. And it turns out, fortunately, that there are lots of planets and there are many types of, there are many planets that are unlike any that we have in our own solar system. So planets are plentiful. That's good, right? Um, and then um, in addition to exoplanets, the other thing that has uh, changed what we think about what might be possible out there is life that we call extremophiles, types of life that live in environments that would be totally um, unsurvivable for humans but are, they're perfectly happy, right? And it's not only just microbes, it's, it's, it's large-scale life that lives in, in ice, in boiling battery acid, you know, huge pressures with no light, et cetera, et cetera. So the, this joint extremophiles and exoplanets have been the game changers in SETI and astrobiology over the past few decades. And it's, you know, it's made the cosmos appear to be more bio-friendly than we thought when we started out. So that's a good trend. It doesn't mean that any of these potentially habitable worlds are actually inhabited. We don't know that yet. That's going to come this century, I think. Um, and we're really eager to, to see... Um, how often a habitable world is actually inhabited. 
And the uh, to find to find a, a a habitable planet, it's estimated that uh, Kepler has found uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 million habitable planets in the Milky Way. Is that correct? Well, it hasn't actually found 500 million. It's found thousands, and then you do the statistics and you extrapolate to the whole galaxy. Yes. Okay. And and um, and then the next step is a spacecraft that looks for biosignatures or technosignatures around these other worlds. So, can you explain explain what that what that is? Well, biosignatures that we could think about looking for remotely would be gases in the atmosphere of a planet. When we actually have telescopes with the capability of imaging some of these planets, we could look for gases that might be the kind of thing that we have in our atmosphere here. So on Earth, we have, at the same time, methane and oxygen. And those gases are very reactive. And if you put them together in a lab, they'll immediately turn into carbon dioxide and and water. We have biology on the surface of our planet, which are emitting those gases. So we have bovine flatulence to give us the methane, and we have lots of plants um, and photosynthesis to give us the oxygen. And so our atmosphere is out of equilibrium. Right. Very noticeably so. Now, that's a hard job, right? Primarily because the planet is so much fainter than the bright star that it's right next to. And so we have to develop schemes for separating the light that's reflected off the planet from the light from the star and then being able to have big enough telescopes to collect a lot of photons so that we can actually make this chemical analysis. But if we go looking for this kind of chemical disequilibrium and being mindful that the Earth's atmosphere has changed profoundly over billions of years of evolution and has changed profoundly because of life evolving, um, that we can probably, at some future date, look for this chemical biosignature. And then the other thing we can do is look to see if anybody has done any engineering and technology that would modify the planet in a way that we could uh, understand and recognize. So in, in a kind of a parallel structure, we not only want to look for biosignatures for life, we want to look for technosignatures for intelligent life. So when we get the ability to look at planetary systems, I like to use the example of the TRAPPIST-1 system, which um, is a a very marvelous system that has seven Earth-sized planets orbiting a, a, a very faint red star. And this is a small system. Everything would fit inside the orbit of Mercury if it were in our solar system. But those seven planets are still at different distances from the host star, and so they should be at different temperatures, right? But what happens if when we get the ability to look at and and actually image those planets, we find out that they're all the same? They're all the same temperature, right? They look identical. Um, You might really be uh, inclined to think that that's a lot of astroengineering that some technological civilization that developed on one of those planets and co-evolved with the, the planet decided that they wanted more real estate and went to the neighboring planets and engineered them to be more suitable. Anyway, and so that's the kind of thing that technosis, so we talk about SETI and that's really been looking for radio and optical and infrared signals, but now we're talking about technosignatures as a broader class because we're looking forward to these new observational capabilities that we've never had in the past and that might in fact allow us to see evidence of someone else doing some engineering and modifying their environment. And would this also include looking for things like satellites and space stations and things in their orbit, correct? Yeah. Correct. But they'd have to be a lot of them. 
right? Uh, so maybe these 60,000 constellation satellites that we're beginning to talk about, right, um, might be detectable, but one or two, that's going to be a lot harder. Wow. Okay. I want to I want to switch gears a little bit and take take listeners back and take you back to your childhood and uh, take you back because um, it says that you and your father looked at the night sky and uh, and your your father was a big, um, big booster of yours and really, really inspired you to to learn about astronomy. And um I want to know, because I'm very interested in the stories we tell about science, and I'm very interested in science fiction and, and uh, how it manifests itself in the minds of people. I'd like to know what your, if at all, you were interested in science fiction and what your favorite stories were when you were young. Oh, I love science fiction, still do. Okay, um, great. <laughs> um, in fact, the first time I ever could have a pet, was a cat, which I named Petronius, from oh, the door into summer, right? A science fiction story that I, I very much loved. Um, yeah, I think science fiction is spectacular uh, because it just takes these out-of-the-box ideas and puts them into a, a situation, a story that we can um, enjoy. And, you know, uh, I, I am always impressed by the imagination of science fiction writers. And I think some of the best writers are also scientists and engineers, right? They have, uh, so that's, that, that's the old-fashioned science fiction, not, not the um, fantasy sort of stuff that's been happening now. But, um, yeah, it, it was great fun still is what are some of your favorite science fiction stories that deal with outer space specifically i'd love to know yeah well i love contact right (laughs) of course i besides contact what i love about that is that you um you never see the other right Mm -hmm. so you get to use your own imagination to think about uh what might be there, um, what they might be like, and you're not constrained by some description. Um, Moten God's Eye, I like that one because it talked about how something that was absolutely obvious in front of us, we didn't recognize because of a difference in time scales, right? Mm. Um, the Door into Summer, as I said, um, lots of Asimov uh, Foundation trilogy, um, all yeah, good good things. Yeah, what's your favorite song about space? Song about space? Ah, oh, you know, I'm actually one of these people who's profoundly tone deaf, so <laughs> I'm I'm much rather don't, I'm you much don't better, listen to music much. No, no, I'm much better dancing to music than than thinking about what it's saying. So. If you could visit any nebula or or solar system or anything, where would it be? What would you like to see in person? Hmm. Well, I think I'd really like to go to the nearest stellar system to ours, right? Um, Proxima Centaur. And, and the reason for that is... Um, there are multiple stars in that system, one of them very similar to the sun, one a red dwarf. Uh, and I think we'd learn, so if I only get, we now only have a sample of one, right? Life on this planet. And if I only get to have a sample of two to generalize, I think I'd like to go to the closest system because if we were to find life there, so close to us, I think we'd have uh, a lot more reason to generalize and say life is ubiquitous, right? Because um, if it's very, very rare, it's unlikely that two stars that are co-located, the Sun and, and Proxima, um, would both have life if life, in fact, were rare. 
But if we go there and we find life, then I think we have um, a basis for saying, indeed, life is quite common. Mm. How do you think that would change things on Earth? Would we would we would we be better to each other in that sense, or would we just be like, well, we can mess up this planet because there's another one we can go to? Yeah, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't buy into this Plan B, right? I think yeah. um, <laughs> we got to figure it out here because if we just plan to go somewhere else, we'll just take all the same problems and we'll create a mess there. So I really do think that we have to get it right here. And that means, among other things, that we have to begin thinking of ourselves not as Americans or Californians or Europeans. We have to begin thinking of ourselves as earthlings. And we have to act like that because these challenges that are so daunting are global. They don't respect national boundaries. We're going to have to find planet-wide solutions by cooperating in order to get out of the messes that we've gotten ourselves into. And that's something you always see in science fiction, isn't it? It's like, well, on this planet, this is how we do things. And we have a planetary government. And and, and it always seems like this very planetary monoculture. And um, and it, it doesn't really speak to the to the way our planet works that much. Um, it's very highly simplified. Well, um, yes. Yeah. Yes, but I think that that's a necessity, right? If you're postulating a long-lived civilization, you can't be that unless you're husbanding the planet that you live on. And you can't have one half of the planet be advanced and the other half not, and one have water and the other. You really do, to be long-lived, you really do need global solutions and cooperation, even if you have individual cultural norms, you still have to, uh, I think, agree on some generalized solutions to keeping the planet habitable. What does that say when when I think of, um, you know, global planetary solutions, um, I think of of uncontacted tribes in the in the Amazon rainforest. How do we preserve their form of life and then also continue to be a very technologically advanced uh, society and planet? Well, is that possible? I don't know. One thing that we need to do is um, make sure that the forests that they live in and the water supplies that they're dependent on are not ruined by logging and pollution and other manifestations of technology. I mean, they can't continue in their cultural norm unless the environment around them is preserved. And so I think that ultimately they're not going to remain unchanged. They can, in fact, I believe, have a, um, a cultural identity, but I think that Again, because we need to husband the planet for a long future, they are going to be impacted. And, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's a loss of diversity. It's a loss of cultural diversity. And that's un, unhappy. On the other hand, um, by becoming more assimilated, it's possible that their standard of living and their health will be improved. And then we keep, then we keep their culture alive in terms of storytelling and videography and musicology, all of that. But I think ultimately we're not going to have 
in this, you know, distinct and very, very separated populations. We'll just have to um, keep that history alive as history, as cultural history. Oh, that's interesting. Interesting. It's an interesting things to think about. Um, when you when you think about the the challenges facing us as a as a human race right now, what are your uh, and as a scientist, what are your biggest concerns? Well, um, managing population, right? Um, managing resources, water and food managing the climate, right? And not allowing the planet to overheat and be um, unsustainable for, for any life. Those are some pretty big challenges. And again, there's not a national solution to any of them. Yeah. Um, in, um, in the UN, I, I want to go back to the, the notion of this sort of planetary body, the UN actually has a treaty of outer space, correct? And um, so technically, no one owns outer space, like the ocean, it's you said it's like the ocean. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Like how, how do we legislate what what happens uh, when we go out there? Well, first of all, we have to get more countries to sign on to that treaty. Um, yeah. But in recent years, it has been determined that while you can't own a piece of another body in space, you are allowed to um, exploit it and to garner resources from it. And whether this means that we turn everything out there into a mess that we've made on Earth, I don't know. But it is, it is possible to go and mine asteroids, for example. And one thing that I've thought about is that it might have a beneficial impact on this planet because the mining that we currently do, particularly for things like diamonds um, and other really rare elements, uh, is just so horrific and um, debases a whole population, right? It, it, we don't treat our miners well. And if indeed these resources were available from a distant body via robotics, um, then in fact we might be able to uh, lift up a population that's basically enslaved right now. Hmm. Yeah. How do you feel about SpaceX and, and the, uh, the sort of notion of, of, a well, A, a colony on Mars, and then B, something a little bit more like leisure travel to space? Well, that was really big when I was a graduate student, this um, Jerry O'Neill space colonies and stuff like that. Um, SpaceX, you know, I'm pretty sure that we're going to have scientific community on Mars. I'm not sure that we will have a general population on Mars. It's pretty hard. I mean, survival up there is not easy. And terraforming, if you're talking about that, that's going to take 100,000 years to really get a stable, if, if it's possible. And I think in the interim, you're going to have scientists who are just so excited about understanding how planets work by studying something other than the one we live on. Uh, we might, in fact, find life on Mars, either extinct or even extant underground in um, local aquifers. And, and if we do, then the whole, the whole picture changes. I mean, do we leave Mars to the Martians? Um, do we find out, and this is really an interesting question, do we find out that um, we ourselves are Martians? That, in fact, with all the rock swapping that goes on early in the formation of a planetary system, 
that a microbe um, that had developed on Mars didn't hitch a ride on a rock and come to Earth and, and seed life here. I mean, is life on Earth related to any life that we might find on Mars? Or is there, if we find life there, is it a second genesis? And again, that one to me is the one that's so interesting because just like if we found life on Proxima, in the Proxima Centauri system, if we find life with a different genesis, you know, independent origin on two planets in this one solar system, it's going to mean that life is ubiquitous, that life is everywhere. Um, so I don't know the answer to that. I mean, Elon has <coughs> a great vision. He wants to save the earth. And, um, but is that the way to do it? Or is it really going to be that humans co-evolved with this planet? Now we are ideally suited to living on this planet and that the timescales for changing another planet to be suitable for us and our biosphere um, may be too long to be practical. I don't know. It's a tall order. <laughs> it's not easy. You don't snap your fingers. Yeah. Um, do you do you watch um, UFO footage on YouTube? Do you find yourself uh, tinkling in on the internet looking for UFO footage or internet conspiracies about space? Do you do you get into that at all? I avoid that as much as I possibly can. I mean, I when we got <laughs> when we started um, the SETI Institute, when we started this whole scientific exploration, there was almost universal uh, conflation of SETI and UFOs. And we spent a great deal of time trying to establish our credibility and trying to point out that the, um, the strategies that we follow, the rules that we follow, um, are appropriate to a scientific exploration. And it's not just oh, here's a great story, and well, no, of course I didn't get a picture, and oh, well, this is something blurry over here, or here's a little TikTok from a new um, radar system. Um, and so we set standards for um, verification and validation that are appropriate to the magnitude of the kinds of announcements we might want to make one day. And so um, I think it's really important to keep that boundary between something that is, you know, just without appropriate evidence and something that is a scientific exploration. I, I heard you in one in uh, one interview say that um, if if you knew that life existed elsewhere, you wouldn't keep it a secret. You would be announcing it no problem. We would know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the, the that is the um, the mindset of the SETI community. At least, and, and when you think about that subset that's looking for signals. Right, a signal is not coming to a telescope in California. It's coming to the planet Earth. And so um, it's appropriate that that information gets uh, distributed. And in addition, unless you get really lucky and the, the source of the signal is at a very towards the poles of the planet so that you can, it's what we call circumstellar and you can, circumpolar rather, and you can look at it 24 hours a day. Um, from mid, from the equator and mid latitudes, uh, you're going to need multiple countries to continue to gather information from that source as the, as the planet rotates. So, I mean, no, it's the property of humankind. You don't keep it secret. Yeah. 
And this is actually something that you would like um, people who aren't scientists to get involved in. You want everybody to be searching for intelligent life in the universe. Can you talk about that? Well, there have been a number of programs um, of citizen science kind of things. I think the the first, and certainly the thing that put citizen science on the map, was SETI at Home, which was developed by um, researchers at UC Berkeley, and it allowed you to run a program that, in the background, made use of CPU cycles that you weren't otherwise using on your computer uh, to, to, to do the searches for signals um, in data that had been recorded at various observatories looking for patterns in frequency and time. And this, oh, this is really, really successful as a citizen science project. And there have been others uh, since then. Uh, I tried to use, for, for a couple of years, we used human eyeballs to find signals in portions of the spectrum that we otherwise ignored because there was so much interference from our own technology. But the eye is a fantastic filter, and so we we did that. Uh, I think that, uh, yeah, we'd love to get people involved in our activity. And the question is how to do that um, in a way that we're now in a different era where when we started with this citizen science kind of activity, our computing was the limiting resource. There just wasn't enough computational power. But now the computing has increased so amazingly uh, that that's not really our limitation anymore. And so um, there's a tendency to say, okay, well now the computers are better at this than the humans. So let's the computers do it. And then what is it that the humans can do that the computers can't. So we're, we're trying to rethink how we use people and their amazing processing capabilities um, in a way that, that really honors their, um, their gifts as opposed to a machine. I watched a really interesting documentary on people who are flat earthers. And one of the, uh, they interviewed a scientist about flat earthers. And his his uh, response was really interesting. It was, here are these here are these people who, ultimately at the at the very at the most basic um, most in the most basic ways are seekers and they're seeking knowledge and they're seeking um, they're they're maybe not not uh, engage haven't been engaged in the correct way. How do you how do you get people engaged in science and and really um, really in the in the scientific materialist sort of you know this is this is this is the established pattern <laughs> how do you break the how do you break the sort of wishful thinking and the magical thinking out of citizen citizen science yeah how do you how do you contend with magical thinking because you know the you're always thinking about things that are better right, in some sense, and then the reality that we are in. Um, You basically have to start with the fact that there are some rules, that nature is not without rules. And uh, rather than just saying, well, here's the equation for gravitational attraction, involve them in some activities that allow them to experiment. And I think that's, that's really what you need to do, is you need to get these people in, involved, particularly as young people, uh, and allow them a range of activities and a ways to experiment, and then go through the process of what is the best explanation for the um, actions you just explored. Yeah, and I mean, it can't be just whatever you want it to be. Good old-fashioned scientific method. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, we, when we developed curriculum, um, interactive curriculum for kids, like third grade through ninth grade, it was really important 
to have them be part of setting up the experiments and deciding what you were going to do, right? Because then they had to own the outcomes, right? They had to think in advance about, well, I'm going to do this and we'll see what happens. And if this happens, it's going to mean this. And if that happens, it's going to mean something else. But, but have them involved from the beginning with setting up the framework and figuring out how to interpret what was going to come out. What are you looking forward to? What's, uh, what's the trajectory of, Seti, of SETI over the next uh, decade that you, uh, you can tell us about? What are you excited for in the next decade? Well, I think we've, we've done some of that. Um, obviously, it's going to get faster. We're going to be able to search in more ways for different kinds of signals. But I think the two, the, the, the two directions I want to see it go is to really uh, get the ability to be sensitive to transient signals at all kinds of different frequencies. So looking at all the sky all the time and then involving machines so that we look for what's there rather than telling the machine to look for this. Right. So I think those are the two directions that, that we'll see a lot of um, forward progress in the next couple of decades. And have there been any um, prog uh projects that had to that had to go by the wayside because of coronavirus? Have you been putting anything on pause? What are you looking forward to getting back to once this is all over? <laughs> I'm looking forward to getting back to being able to talk in person to my mm. colleagues. Um, we've actually, you know, if you think about it, observatories by their nature are fairly isolated. You want to be away from either light pollution or radio frequency interference. And so in these isolated areas, you can figure out how to have a small team that is socially, you know, they become, what it, was it called? They become your um, coronavirus pod or something like that. Mm, sure, yes. Group. Um, so the observatories have continued to function. Um, and for the rest, you know, it's all a keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, there haven't. Well, there is there is one thing. Um, we we have a telescope that we want to put um, on Haleakala in Hawaii, mm. uh, and we're trying to figure out how to deploy that thing when you've got a 14 day quarantine if you're going to go there. So that one has been impacted by the coronavirus. That's that's one of our um, it's laser SETI all sky all the time telescopes and we haven't figured that one out yet okay all right and then we'll we'll wrap this up our last question if you could um if you could visit anywhere in our solar system what planet or moon would you like to go to enceladus okay, okay. that one's why right because um this tiny little moon right has an icy outer shell that's cracked and in the South Pole, coming out through those cracks, are um, there's the effluent from cryovolcanoes. So it is it is spewing out into space part of the ocean that exists globally under the ice. And so that's kind of a free lunch. It's offering you what you know. It's a way to explore what's contained in those oceans. And possibly, I mean, there are models for the origin of life on Earth, which has it arising uh, around some of the, the cryovolcanoes, or the, I'm sorry, the um, black smokers on the bottom of terrestrial oceans that might have been a place for chemistry to turn into biology. And if that's happened on something like Enceladus, then that biology might be contained in the um, outflow from that small moon. And so you want to fly through it, concentrate it, figure out what's there. Oh, amazing. There, this reminds me of, uh, of an analogy that you use, and I think this is a great way to wrap this up. Um, 
there's an analogy you use comparing uh, how much of the the um, the universe we've mapped and know about versus the ocean. Can you can you talk about that? The, and this is this was in response to somebody asking why we haven't heard from intelligent life, why we haven't found it. If it's if it really could be that plentiful, then why haven't we found it? Right. And the answer is basically we haven't looked uh, <clears throat> in spite of what we've been doing for the past 60 years. Yes. So there are many different parameters that you need to explore uh, in this search for signals from extraterrestrial intelligence. First of all, is signals the right thing to look for? Hopefully, but maybe not. Maybe we're doing a, a superb job at exactly the wrong thing. But if it is electromagnetic signals, there are nine parameters that need to be explored. There's three dimensions of space. There's, there's time, there's frequency, there's polarization. Um, there's the modulation scheme. And lastly, there's sensitivity. You know, you don't know how, because you don't know how powerful the transmitter is, how far away it is. You don't know how sensitive your instrument has to be in order to uh, detect it. So if you take those nine parameters, it's nine-dimensional space. I'm not good at nine-dimensional spaces, but I can, I can make an estimate of various uh, ranges of those parameters and just multiply it all together and say, this is the volume that I have to explore in order to have a chance of finding an electromagnetic signal. And then you say, by analogy, let's take that volume, whatever it is, and set it equal to the volume of all the Earth's oceans. And then ask the question, okay, now we got something that we can visualize. How much of the oceans have we actually explored? And it turns out that when I did this first one, said he was 50 years old, it was one eight-ounce glass out of the oceans. And it was just done by Penn State students last year. They redid the calculation. And it's more like a hot tub now. <laughs> but that's not a lot of exploration. You know, if you took a glass and scooped it in the ocean and said, I wonder if there are any fish in the ocean. Well, <laughs> yeah. That glass could capture a small fish. But if you don't find a fish when you scoop up that glass of water, um, you're not likely to conclude that there are no fish in the ocean. You're likely to conclude that uh, I have to search more. Amazing. So that's my analogy. Well, that's it's it's perfect, and I think it it's a great way to to uh, put it in the perspective of for all of our listeners. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for joining us and and uh, taking the time out to speak with me. It was such a great honor. Um, and uh, I wish you all the best of luck on your continued search. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been fun talking with you. Thanks for listening to the Blue Dot Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening. And check out show notes and more information on this episode at discovertheblue.com slash podcast. This episode was brought to you thanks to support from The Space through funding from Arts Council England and the National Lottery.